Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Dream Bigger podcast. I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Array. If you're new here, let me tell you a little bit about this podcast. Basically, a few years ago, I decided I wanted to bring you information right from the source. I'm talking about wellness tips, skincare advice, stories about entrepreneurship, and just general motivation to inspire you to live your most optimized, fulfilling life. And who better to bring you all of this than some of the smartest people I know? As a content creator and brand founder, I have access to so many experts, and I wanted to bring you their wealth of knowledge. So I hope this podcast helps you dream bigger. Today's guest is actually someone very close to my heart. Dr. Kelsey Harris is a licensed naturopathic physician with a passion for individualized holistic healthcare. She's the co-founder of Terrain Natural Medicine in Bend, Oregon, and is on Array's medical board. Now, the reason I'm so excited to bring Kelsey onto the podcast is because Kelsey also does consultations for Array's telehealth, a part of the business we launched to help people who wanted to get to the root cause of whatever health issue they were dealing with. This episode is so full of so many gems. Kelsey specializes in women's hormone health, so we did a deep dive there along with so much about general well-being, nutrition, and everything in between. I'm so excited to bring Kelsey to you guys, so let's welcome her to the show. And if you guys are interested in doing a consultation with her, you can find all of the information you need in the show notes. So let's get right into it. So first things first, Kelsey, tell me a little bit about your background. What even got you interested in the world of naturopathy? Yeah, so I wanted to be a doctor for a long time. I felt like that was kind of always my trajectory. And um, when I was in undergrad, I was a pre-med student. I was a human physiology major at the University of Oregon, and I was on track to be an MD. I was going to apply to regular conventional medical school. Um, but during my junior year of school, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. So she was, um, she underwent conventional treatment. She had chemo, radiation, the whole nine yards. Um, but during that time, she also saw a naturopathic doctor who really helped her out, just helping her body to feel better as she was going through chemo um, and addressed her mental, emotional, spiritual concerns as well, which I thought was amazing. Um, and this doctor really made a positive difference in my mom's life. And I realized that that was the kind of difference I was interested in making as well. 
So I'm from Portland, Oregon, um, where there are a lot of naturopathic doctors. There is a school there where I ended up going to medical school. So I knew that the profession existed. Um, and I went on a tour and then it just felt right. And now I'm a naturopathic doctor. <laughs> that is such an incredible story. And actually, you're not the first person who I've spoken to who has like something kind of like that as well. Actually, another... I believe she's a holistic nutritionist that I spoke to actually went through uh, cancer herself. And she said the same thing that like she, while she was going through like all of the Western kind of medicine route, when she implemented some more holistic measures as well, she saw like such high success. And then, you know, when she was done, I think like her rounds, she just went and started doing like all these holistic things. And she found herself to be like her healthiest and her happiest. And, you know, that's why she kind of wanted to help people as well. So I think that that's such a beautiful story that like, you know, it comes from that like experience that you had with your mom. Yeah. Totally. It really, I mean, it really resonated with me in a, in a deeper way. And I think that's something that I try to bring to my, to my job now. I want to bring that, that heart aspect to my relationship with my patients. I love that. So then for, I guess, like a, like a regular person who may not know, what is, like, how do you work differently with patients than an MD? Like, do you sometimes work in conjunction with an MD and like, I would love also if you explained like how naturopathic doctors are different in Oregon, for example, where like, you know, you can actually be a primary care provider as well. So like, if you can get into those de details, that'd be awesome. Yeah, totally. So licensure across the US and Canada really varies between what state you're in or what province you're in. Um, but yes, in Oregon, I am considered a primary care provider. So all MDs are trained in conventional um, diagnostics so I can diagnose and treat disease. Um, I can order conventional labs, conventional imaging, um, pretty much all the same things that your medical doctor can do. Also in Oregon, I have a quite a large formulary of pharmaceutical medications that I can prescribe as well when necessary. Of course, I am a naturopathic doctor, so I like to avoid that uh, when, when possible, but I do believe that there is a time and a place for everything, including pharmaceuticals, surgery or other medical interventions as needed. Um, really though, what it comes down to is how I differ from an MD is the philosophy. So I really try to take a more holistic approach with my patient care. Um, my goal is to find the root cause of why my patients are experiencing the symptoms that they are and to really address that root cause and solve the problem instead of just suppressing symptoms and putting more of a Band-Aid on the issue. Um, if we are able to successfully find and treat the root cause, then that person is able to move on with their life and experience a, a healthier life without that condition coming back time and time again when they are off of the drug or whatever the conventional treatment may have been prescribed. Yeah, I mean... I think that nowadays, especially, first of all, I really like that you are kind of like a best of both worlds thing, you know, whereby like, it's not like you, you don't believe that there is like, you know, a, a time and place for conventional medicine as well. Like, or sorry, uh, for like, you know, um, Western medicine as well. Like, I think that de yeah. there definitely is like with, you know, sometimes like 
for example, like I remember once I had just the worst UTI and it was getting to the point where it was going to become a kidney infection. And uh-huh. I, I um, messaged Nat, who you obviously know, Natalie, from like our team as well. And she's like, Sif, you need to go get an antibiotic immediately before it's just too, like, she's like, you don't want to go through this. It's too late for you. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. So I like, yeah. I love that. I think it's like, it's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I really feel like that's good medicine. Number one is keeping people safe. And sometimes to keep you safe, that in your case, that was taking the antibiotic because yes, you do not want to have a kidney infection. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. No fun at all. Like just the worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to answer more of your question, so I am trained in those conventional modalities that MDs are trained in, but I'm also trained in herbal medicine, which I use a lot in my practice. I find that herbs can be quite effective and they can be quite lovely um, for a lot of folks. I'm trained in clinical nutrition, um, targeted supplementation, IV therapy, minor surgery, homeopathy, which I don't personally use a ton of, but a lot of naturopathic doctors do. Um, and some mind-body training as well and counseling. So again, oh. just a more holistic approach. Okay, so tell everyone what is homeopathy because for the longest time, I had no idea. I would just like see homeopathic medicine and like aisles of at Whole Foods and stuff. I like, could you get into that a little bit, please? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an interesting one to explain. So homeopathy is really more of an energetic medicine. So in those, uh, a common one that you might see at the health food store is Arnica. So in the Arnica pellets that you get, technically there's nothing in them. It's a very diluted substance. Um, so Arnica comes from a plant originally, but it's so diluted by the time it's in the homeopathic pellet, there's technically nothing left of the substance. It only is really the energetic component of that substance, which it, it's very interesting. Um, I would say it's a very gentle medicine. Um, some people can respond quite nice to it. I find that children can respond nice to homeopathic. They're mm-hmm. a little bit more sensitive usually. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the basics of what a homeopathic medication is, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Okay, so I wanted to get into like a few different, I guess, like pain points that people typically have. I think first and foremost is immune system. And I feel like right now it's such a relevant topic because, you know, it's COVID times and people are just trying to take better care of themselves, especially because it's, you know, dark and gloomy and cold outside. So what are some of your favorite supplements that you recommend for immune support? Yeah. um, So I like to keep it simple, um, but I think my top three are vitamin D3, zinc and black elderberry why so vitamin vitamin d3 uh, there's evidence that suggests that it can enhance our innate immunity or that's our body's first response um to when we encounter a bacteria or another a virus or another foreign pathogen and so vitamin d helps to enhance that and stimulate that there's some really interesting research with vitamin d that shows that it increases um, incidence of infection of the common cold and influenza when you have adequate blood levels of vitamin D. So vitamin D is something that I've been more persistent about testing in all of my patients as we we move through this pandemic, Mm -hmm. making sure that people have adequate vitamin D levels. Um, It becomes much more problematic in more of the the northerly latitudes 
So Canada, all of Canada would be, <laughs> would be considered this um, and the upper portion of the United States. In the winter, uh, the sun, even if it's sunny outside and you're out there with exposed skin, the sun isn't strong enough for your body to convert that sunlight into usable vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So that's where supplementation comes in handy. Okay, I have actually a question um, to do with this, but like, is there a hard and fast way to dose vitamin C or would you say you evaluate it case by case based on um, someone's vitamin D3 levels or um, just looking at, I guess, like their their body and like their, yeah, like them overall? Yeah, I'm sorry, you, dosing vitamin C or vitamin D? D, D3. Okay, perfect. Yes, I like to use a blood level to guide that because vitamin D is fat soluble. So mm-hmm. um, you can overdo it. If you're taking too much vitamin D, it can be toxic. So I like to get a blood level that helps me um, come up with a more accurate dose. I'd say 4,000 IU is a common one that I recommend, 4,000 IU daily. That's really one that will help boost your vitamin D level, um, whereas 2,000 IU is more of a maintenance dose. That one's just going to keep you where you're at. Um, oftentimes, I see vitamin D being taken at 500 IU a day, 800 IU. That's really not going to do a whole lot. It's a really small dose. Um, but again, I like to make sure we have a blood level to make sure we're not overdoing it and that people are taking it safely. Very cool. And then tell me about zinc and elderberry as well. Yeah, so zinc is another one that helps the body fight off bacteria and certain viruses. So a nice one to have on board. It has a pretty quick um, effect too in the body. So there's some evidence that you can take it, you know, say before you're flying to give your immune system a little bit of a, a quicker boost, if you will, right before traveling is how I like to use it. Mm-hmm. And then black elderberry is a great one for um, fighting against viruses. It has a very strong antiviral effect, and especially against the flu virus. So it's been shown to both decrease the severity and the length of flu symptoms if you were to get infected with the flu. And so that's one that I like to have on board every winter, um, especially now. But I like to do it with a syrup form. I put just a, a teaspoon or so in my tea and kind of drink it throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, I use all three of those and I like, I love them and they've saved me many a times. Yeah, no, they're great. A great little trifecta right there. It's true. Um, okay, so let's talk about sleep a little bit because I think it's an area that is so often neglected. So as an ND, what are a few tips you can give us for sleep? Mm-hmm. I like to start with just good basic sleep hygiene. So these are things that people probably know, but you know, it's nice to have a reminder. <laughs> so sleep hygiene really looks at what are your behaviors before you go to, go to sleep at night? Um, what is your bedroom like? Is it cool? Is it quiet? Um, what are you doing in your bed? Are, does your bed double as your office? Are you working in your bed or are you just using it for sleep? Um, your bed should really only be used for sleep and for sex. So keep that in mind. (laughs) Those are the only two things that go on in there. Um, And you're much more likely to have better sleep if you're sleeping in a cool and quiet quiet environment in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, Another really important aspect of optimizing sleep is to avoid blue light before going to bed. So this is something that I struggle with, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of other people out there struggle with as well. We all have our phones. 
phone's connected to us at all times. Um, but I recommend avoiding blue light for at least two hours before, before going to bed. So blue light is emitted from all of our electronic devices, including TVs, computers, cell phones, you name it, blue light is coming out of that screen. What blue light is doing is it is suppressing your melatonin excretion. So that's problematic because melatonin is a major regulator of our sleep-wake cycle, and we need to have enough of it circulating before we go to sleep to sleep well. Got it. Okay, cool. And then do you also recommend, like, if someone is having issues falling asleep or, you know, like, for whatever reason, they're not being able to sleep, how do you feel about melatonin use? Like, do you feel like it's, like, something that you should kind of avoid if it's, like, a daily thing? Like, is it okay once in a while? What are the kind of dosing that you're, that you recommend? Like, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, again, time and a place. Time and place for everything. Melatonin is one, though, that I do not like people to be taking nightly. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of become dependent on it, if you will, and we want your body to be able to release it naturally without having it come from an uh, outside source. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, taking it once in a while is, is safe, and it can be quite effective for a lot of folks. I typically like to start at a smaller dose. Um, one milligram before bed is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. um, I really think with anything, the smaller the, the smaller the effective dose, the better. Um, but yeah, melatonin can help for, work for some people. It doesn't work for some people. Um, generally, though, it's a pretty safe thing to try. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Like people take it every night. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So while we are on the topic of sleep, I know that a lot of people are late night snackers, which can you know get in the way of I think quality sleep. So first of all, why is that? Like, why why are we recommended to like finish eating, um, you know, a couple of hours before sleeping? Yeah. So a major reason for that is that when if we're eating late at night, that will cause our blood sugar to increase before we're trying, going trying to go to sleep, which is going to make us feel more stimulated and awake. Um, eating too close to bedtime can also result in increased heartburn and reflux because you have a full stomach and you're lying down and you're not digesting in the normal way that you would be if you're sitting up and still moving about your day. Um, so with the blood sugar aspect, consuming certain foods are really going to be more problematic than others. Um, if someone's going to have, you know, if you have a piece of cake before you go to bed, that's really going to spike your blood sugars and cause you to feel a little bit more wired mm -hmm. than if you were to have, say, uh, a hard-boiled egg or another protein source. Got it. And why is it that certain foods, like say, for example, if you have like a bowl of rice in the middle of the day, okay, like people get sleepy, right? Like there are certain foods where you eat like a lot of it in the middle of the day and like you, you get sleepy for whatever the reason. Like, why does that happen? Do you know? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of reasons there. So if, so say a bowl of rice, if you're having a bowl of white rice, that's mm -hmm. really what we call a simple carbohydrate. Yeah. And so it's essentially sugar. It's really easy for our bodies to break down. It's going to turn into glucose, our body's sugar fuel, right when we eat it. Mm -hmm. So that's going to cause a spike in your blood sugar and then a dramatic dip, which is going to cause that. So that could be part of the reason. Another reason is that say you have a really heavy meal in the middle of the day, lots of fat, protein, large meal. Digestion is really a function of our parasympathetic part of our nervous system or our rest and digest portion of our nervous system. So our body is 
focusing all of its effort on breaking down that food and getting nutrients from that food, which is also going to contribute to your feelings of fatigue. So interesting. Um, okay. So aside from all of this, what are also like just supplements that we can take um, for improved sleep quality? Yeah, well, I love magnesium. Magnesium is a good one. Um, actually, actually just wrote a array blog post all about magnesium that should be coming out soon. So that one should be helpful for people and navigating the different kinds of types of magnesium. Um, but magnesium glycinate is the one I, I recommend most commonly for sleep. That can just help to facilitate relaxation and calm the mind down a little bit. Um, there are a variety of herbs that can be helpful too, just uh, depending on what what the person needs. I like lavender. Um, lavender is usually a nice one to, again, kind of take the edge off and get into that, that state ready to go to sleep. I also really like lavender tea. Yeah, lavender tea is great. Yeah, it's so nice. <laughs> like I take it like sometimes before bed. It's just like a nice little treat as well, I feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just a nice little gentle way to unwind. Also, side note, guys, like you have to read her blog posts that she writes for Array. They're so good. Thank you. That means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I love them. They're just, they're like so, they're like such easy reads. And like, I always learn something new and like, you know, as someone who's like in that team, like it's, it's always really nice to have someone who's like way more, you know, experienced and like educated than you to like even teach you. So yeah, I, I love your blog posts. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to hormones because this really is your specialty and something that actually like my family and I have been discussing a lot lately is intermittent fasting when it comes to specifically women, because I know that lately there's been like a lot of kind of back and forth and like mixed opinions about like whether this is something that's okay for hormones. Is there a hard and fast rule when it comes to all women? Like, or is it just like it works for some and not for others? Yes. Unfortunately, there's not a hard and fast rule as with, you know, most things with medicine, <laughs> but um, yes, it can be helpful when it's done in a certain way for some women and it can be harmful if it's done in a different way for others it really just depends on what you're using intermittent fasting for um, and how you're doing it because there are a lot of different ways you can do intermittent fasting um, i can say generally i recommend intermittent fasting for individuals who are having some sort of blood sugar dysregulation so especially my pre-diabetic and diabetic folks mm -hmm. um, it's a great way to improve your insulin sensitivity and your, your blood sugar regulation in your body. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who suffers from blood sugar dysregulation, intermittent fasting can be helpful and helpful for your hormones. Um, the, the way, when it, it becomes problematic is when women are taking it to an extreme. So it really depends on how long is the window that you're fasting for. So intermittent fasting can be quite effective when you just fast for 12 hours out of the day. And that's typically what I recommend to patients. So if you eat your last meal in the evening at 6 p.m., you're not going to eat anything until 6 a.m. And that seems reasonable. That's not too restrictive of a window for eating. Mm -hmm. um, when someone's restricting their intake of calories and nutrients more than that, that's when it can become problematic for your hormone health. So your body won't have as many of the building blocks needed to make a healthy amount of your sex hormones, which can result in 
um, things like menstrual cycle dysregulation or in more extreme cases, the loss of a menstrual cycle. That's so interesting. See, the thing is with like intermittent fasting, like I intermittent fast and like eating even within a 12 hour window is so difficult for me. Like today, I don't know why, like I found that since I started, first of all, like I remember even from when I was really, really young, I was never someone who liked eating breakfast. I'd always feel so like, I don't know. I just never liked it. My grandma would force me to eat before I went to school when I was really, really young. Now I'm just like, yeah. And so I'm, I'm just thinking that like, if it's good for hormone regulation, like, is there a certain I guess like time period where you should be adhering to like 12 hours, like for sure. Or are there certain foods that you recommend that like, I guess like for, for people who aren't, I guess, comfortable eating in the morning? Yeah. So first part of your question, I can't give you a hard and fast rule for everyone. That's of really going to be something that you should, everybody's body is going to respond differently to fasting and some people mm-hmm. do better with it than others. Um, in terms of breaking the fast in the morning, even if you're not a big breakfast fan and you are not alone, I have a lot of folks who say they just can't eat in the morning. I want you to just have a small amount of protein. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot. Even if someone has a a handful of nuts, that's really better than nothing. Um, What that's doing, it's really, it is breaking the fast. It's telling your metabolism that you are not in a starved state Mm -hmm. and you have access to food and your body can continue to metabolize things as it normally does instead of holding on to every nutrient that you have because it can being starved, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for me, like the only thing that kind of like helped with this was actually like when I introduced bulletproof coffee and like of course like I I don't know if this is something that works for everyone and I know like it's also one of those like controversial topics, but it was like the perfect like kind of like breakfast for me because you know it's like it's still light, but it gave me like the fuel and clarity that I needed. So it's just, it's just really interesting, this like topic I find. Yeah, no, certainly. I think Bulletproof Coffee is great. I mean, you're getting some fat in there. You're getting some calories. You're getting a little bit of nutrition. Um, our brains love fat. So you're giving your brain some fuel to start the day, which is so important as we all are getting ready to go to work or school or whatever your, your day entails. Just giving your brain some, some energy is really important. Yeah, I found that for me, like it just started giving me so much clarity. Like I could actually think in the morning whereby like back when I used to eat like actual a meal, I'd feel like so, I don't know, like heavy. And like, this is not the case for everyone, but like, I'm obviously like one of those people that you're talking about that like, they just don't love like eating first thing in the morning. So like, this was like a good workaround for me. Yeah, no, I think that's great. You could even put some collagen in there, a little bit of protein powder if you'd like. That would be covering your bases for sure with that coffee. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually start adding collagen or like some protein powder in there, like as soon as I, I can get my hands on some. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so again, like speaking of hormone health. Are there certain workouts that are better for women when it comes to kind of I guess, like looking after their hormones, like are there specific ones that are more beneficial than others or some that you should be doing at specific times of month? Like what are your thoughts there? Yeah, my thoughts are number one, I'll always say this is in in terms of cycles and working out, listen to your body. If you're feeling more tired the week leading up to your menstrual period, take it easier when you're working out. 
Um, again, every woman is different in that sense. Um, but generally, the endurance type exercise is not as great for hormone health as strength training is. Um, again, it's totally dependent on how much you're exercising, whether that's um, endurance or more cardiovascular type exercises versus strength training. But we see more commonly women have menstrual cycle dysregulation um, in the endurance athlete field. So women who are long distance runners um, are the most studied group in terms of losing a menstrual cycle from over-exercising. Wow, so, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what that is, it's called secondary amenorrhea. And it happens because once those athletes are exerting themselves that for that long every day or whatever their workout regimen is, their ovaries are going to stop producing enough estrogen. So this can be due to an energy imbalance, meaning they're not taking in as much energy as they're putting out with their exercise routine and or stress. So in other words, they're using more energy than they are providing to their bodies, which is going to take a toll on your hormones um, and eventually your bone health, health as well. Wow, that is really, really interesting. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so like, I guess like favoring strength training or like balancing out kind of both if you are like someone who enjoys those like long distance runs and whatnot. Yeah, so the research shows that the, the most beneficial exercise for hormones is a combination of moderate cardiovascular exercise with resistance training. And um, so what that's doing is it's going to help um, the right amount of progesterone deformed, deformed and testosterone. So that's really going to be the best um, re exercise routine is a combination of both cardio and strength training. Very cool. So what are a few things that women can do to be preventative when it comes to hormone health? Like, are there certain things that you advise people do? Like, like what, are, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think it, the best thing you can do is really making sure that the pillars of health are in place. So what that means is making sure you're eating a balanced, nutritious diet made up of real food. You're engaging in regular movement that you and your body enjoy. Um, you're getting adequate sleep and you're managing your stress appropriately. So that stress portion is going to be huge for the vast majority of us. <laughs> so what chronic stress does is going to decrease our progesterone formation and it can also affect thyroid health and our blood sugar regulation. So that one is a really, really important cornerstone of being proactive in your hormone health. When it comes to stress, are there some specific pieces of advice you have for people who are like more tightly wound? Like what are those things that I guess like you see, like when you give these pieces of advice to clients or people you come in contact with, it's kind of helpful. Yeah, I guess, and you're right. Some people just are more wired in that, that type A mm -hmm. mentality. I think having a regular mindfulness practice can be huge. Yeah. Um, I myself identify as one of those more type A, tightly yep. wound personalities. Me too. <laughs> um, and in the last year, COVID's really allowed me to have the space to adopt a, a regular mindfulness program, and it's honestly been life-changing. Yeah. So I think the research shows you only need to do 15 to 20 minutes of meditation a day for it to have a profound effect on both your physical and your mental health. So I know it's hard in a busy schedule to carve out the time, but that, that one is just so important that I, I feel like it gets overlooked a lot of the time in our, our busy modern day society. 
Um, in addition to, to mindfulness, though, a regular exercise routine is so important to get outside, spend some time in nature every day, at least 20 minutes. Some fresh air is going to be very important as well. I really like these tips, Kelsey, because I mean, I feel like it's free and anyone can do it. And it's true. Like even I was speaking to um, a really, really big neurosurgeon and even he was saying that like meditation actually makes an impact on people's brains. Like, and that's not something that was like now the, the science is out there too. So it's not just this like woo woo, like, you know, random thing. Like it actually works. And like, I'm with you, Kelsey, like I'm, you know, I'm very much type A and ever since I started my meditation practicing and for me journaling as well, it's made this profound impact that I just, I can't put into words. And like, when I find my practice for both of them has slipped for like a period of time, I feel that immediate difference. Right. Yeah. Same. Like I feel like I get triggered way more easily. I been out into this ridiculous, anxious state that I've been lucky enough to avoid with my regular meditation practice. Yeah, it is. It is truly life-changing. And yeah, like definitely, I think the fresh air component, I didn't appreciate it as much or like I didn't realize it's important until last year when we went into like the really, really high level lockdown where, you know, I was leaving my house like every few days and I was like, why do I feel like so down? And then when the restrictions were a little lifted or like, you know, over the summer when I could go out into my balcony even and just get that fresh air, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what I've been missing. It's the, you know, yeah. it's the sunlight and it's just that, that like being outside. So it's, it's insane. Like, of course, you know, like if, if we're able to like, just to take advantage of that and getting outside is so important. Yeah. Every day. I mean, we, we, developed outside you know we're not supposed to be inside our little buildings every day all day so <laughs> making that a priority as well is huge yeah 100 percent. okay so i want to talk about pcos a little bit here do you have any holistic measures you use for support here like any specific lifestyle changes food supplements you recommend because i've every other friend now that i speak to like they, they suffer from PCOS or like, you know, they have some of the symptoms and it's really heartbreaking. I feel like it's on the rise. Yeah, it is a very common condition for women. And I feel like the most frustrating part is that a lot of women think that their only option is to go on a birth control pill. So yes, that can be helpful. And yes, that's great for some women, but there are so many other things that we can do for PCOS and to help people get um, cycling regularly, help with their blood sugar dysregulation, decrease their testosterone formation. And PCOS is one of my favorite things to work on because there are so many options that we can do. So I like to do a combination of lifestyle changes, dietary interventions, and supplements. Um, my ideal plan is in the long run, I like people to be able to wean off of the supplements, but they can be certainly helpful at first while we're getting some other lifestyle basics um, in, in the program. So what PCOS is, is it is a syndrome with two interrelated metabolic phenomena, if you will. So there's insulin resistance, um, or the body cells aren't as responsive to insulin, which results in the higher blood sugar. And then there can be hyperandrogenism, which is too much testosterone. Um, so some women have insulin resistance with PCOS, 
there are lean types of PCOS when people do not have insulin resistance. And not everyone who has PCOS has elevated androgen. So I will say that as a stipulation that it really is a condition that you need to treat the individual. Mm -hmm. um, but I could talk about PCOS for two hours. <laughs> like, lifestyle modifications that are usually um, good baselines to start with um, and can include is weight loss, uh, stress management, making sure you're exercising for at least 30 minutes a day mm -hmm. and optimizing sleep. So some of those health pillars we already talked about. Um, dietary interventions, a huge one for a lot of women is increasing their protein intake. So um, making sure that you are having protein at every meal and that you are decreasing your intake of simple carbohydrates and sugars. So any white food, so white rice, white bread, cakes, cookies, anything that comes in a package essentially is going to be something that you would want to decrease. Mm -hmm. um, nutritional interventions can be hard and they take a lot of effort. Yeah. So I like to tell my PCOS clients that they should focus on building a healthy plate. So half their plate should be vegetables, a quarter a non-white starch, like a sweet potato um, or a whole grain, and then a quarter a healthy protein. So that's kind of a good baseline to start there. Of course, sometimes we need to um, make dietary interventions individualized, but really just focusing on the protein, veggies can be super helpful. I love that. Like that, that portion, like I know, like I'm going to let you continue, but I think like that's yeah. just so simple because I think people make um, like eating healthy out to be this like very cumbersome task, but really like, I remember when I had this realization myself and it was like, just add, add to your plate, like just add those vegetables to your plate. It was like a revelation. I was like, it doesn't have to be so complicated. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes, that's amazing. I, yes, I always tell people I, we want to focus on what you can add rather than things that you need to take away because that's not healthy. That leads to dis disordered eating habits. So I love that. Says, add vegetables. If you're still hungry after you finish your plate, go for seconds, but make those seconds be the vegetables. If we don't want you to feel hungry, but we could all use more veggies in our lives. So go for those vegetables. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> um, Love that. Yeah. So in terms of supplements, there are a wide variety that we can use, really just depending on what that individual's PCOS picture looks like. And um, some basics, though, that I that are, I more commonly recommend is fish oil. So fish oil helps to decrease triglycerides after meals. Um, it also is a healthy fat. Cholesterol is really the backbone of all of our sex hormones, and we need enough healthy fat to make enough sex hormones. So fish oil is a really good source of the right kinds of fat for that. Um, Myoinositol is a great one, too. So myoinositol is technically part of a B vitamin group, um, and that one is great at decreasing testosterone. It helps to um, mediate the effects of insulin, and it's also associated with good egg quality. So if someone's trying to conceive and they have PCOS, this can be a nice one. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Another, another cool thing about my, my own is that there's been numerous studies showing that it can help to increase and induce ovulation in women with PCOS. Wow. So a lot of these women aren't, aren't ovulating monthly and that's, that's really part of the, the PCOS picture. Got it. So those are the, the tools that you, you're, you love for, I guess, like across the board. Yeah, 
those ones are great. And then I usually throw some herbs in too, depending on what the picture is. Um, different herbs have different actions, kind of like what pharmaceuticals do in the body. Mm-hmm. And that being said, I often recommend Vitex. Um, Vitex helps to lengthen the luteal phase of the cycle or the second half of that menstrual cycle and by supporting progesterone levels. So that one can be really nice too. Okay. Videx changed my life. Like I can't even tell you. So when I was getting off birth control, um, Natalie put me on it and my skin, like it never had that like crazy thing because initially when I went off of it, I was like breaking out a little bit and I told Natalie, she's like, no, 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 stop. Like just, just start this. Like it's going to change your life. And it is, it is incredible what it does. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And of course, I'm so glad you had a good experience. I have some women who respond like you did in an amazing way. And then some not so much. Again, um, it's all about individualizing plants. Person to person, yeah. But yeah, but it's a lovely herb. I love it. Had a lot of success using that. Yeah. So it's like for, are these like, I guess, like the kind of supplements you also recommend for people who are um, just not someone who has um, PCOS, but just wants to be really, I guess, like good about hormone health. Yeah. In terms of basics for hormone health, um, a fish oil is usually one that I recommend 99% of the time. Um, Because like I said, cholesterol is the backbone of all of our sex hormones. So we Mm -hmm. need enough cholesterol to make those hormones. Um, another thing that I like for as a, as a baseline for hormone health, it's not necessarily a supplement per se, but I like, I recommend seed cycling. I don't know if you've heard of seed cycling before. No. So seed cycling is a really nice, gentle food-based intervention that helps to support a regular menstrual cycle. Um, what it's doing is it's based on a 28 day cycle and you can shift this depending on the length of what your cycle is. Um, on days one through 14, so during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, you're using certain types of seeds to help support estrogen formation. And then on days 15 through 28 of your cycle, you switch to two different kinds of seeds that help to support progesterone formation. And so what these seeds have is they have vitamins and minerals that are cofactors for the formation of these hormones. So you can kind of indirectly and gently support hormone production in that way, which is it's a lovely... Um, routine that a lot of women have success with. Actually, you know what? I think I may have like read this in um, Elisa Vitti's book. I don't know if you know her. Um, she wrote The Woman Code. Okay. I am not familiar. But I oh my gosh. I, I mean, I feel like you, you know all of this already, obviously as like a naturopathic doctor, but like I thought that that book was so, so helpful. And so I think she touched on this um, in, in like her first book, but can you go through though, like which seeds you recommend for like, which, I guess like which, which part? Part of the cycle. Yeah, definitely. So on days through one, on days one through 14, day one being your first day of bleeding on your period, um, it's going to be two tablespoons of either ground flax or raw pumpkin seeds. So you can do you can do all ground flax or all raw pumpkin seeds, or you can do a combination of each, whatever you prefer. Um, it's important that the flax seed is ground. When it's in its whole form, we don't digest it. It just goes straight through our GI tract. So it does need to be ground. Oh, wow. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. So whole, whole flax seeds aren't doing a whole, much, a whole lot for us. 
Um, and I do recommend grinding it fresh. I like to do it in the coffee grinder because the oils and the flaxseed can go rancid. Yeah, so grind them fresh, keep it refrigerated. And I like to do that about once a week. Mm-hmm. So days one through 14, ground flax and or raw pumpkin seeds. And then days 15 through 28 is when did you be two tablespoons daily of ground sesame seed and or sunflower seed. I mean, I love both those things. So I feel like this yeah. is just something everyone can do. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I like it because it's a food-based intervention. So um, it's usually it's safe for everybody to do. Um, those seeds have great healthy omega-3 fatty acids in them. They have lots of fiber, vitamins, and minerals. So there's really no downside in, in doing the seed cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get creative. I like to put mine in a smoothie because that's, you don't even notice that you're consuming them that way. Um, I have some women, though, who like to put them on top of salads and soup. However you want to get those in, it's fine. You can get creative. I love that. Okay, so this is like, I guess, a little off track, but not really, because I love finding out about people's go-to smoothie recipes. So actually, what's your favorite smoothie recipe? Like, what is your, like, go-to? Yeah, I'll tell you my go-to. And I had to have a smoothie. I'm on the smooth a deep four-year smoothie hole right now. I think I have one every day, mostly <laughs> boring, but I'm, I don't know. I'm addicted, I guess. Um, what I like to do is I do half a banana, a handful of frozen berries, two handfuls of spinach, a um, couple spoonfuls of almond butter, and then I do almond milk and a little bit of water. I don't like it watery, though, so I do I'm a little heavier on the almond milk. <laughs> um, I put my seeds in there for my seed cycling. And then if I have collagen, I'll throw that in there and blend it up. And I, oh, I also put an avocado in there as well. Half an avocado. That sounds delicious. It's great. I mean, you can't even taste, I have a lot of clients who I recommend doing a green smoothie so they can mm-hmm. get some more vegetables in. It's a great way to start with vegetables in the morning. Um, I have a lot of folks who are hesitant about that, but you really can't even taste the spinach. Oh yeah, I know. This is like one of my favorite like vegetable hacks. Like when, I don't know, I feel like it's just the easiest thing to just like throw a bunch of spinach into your smoothie. You will never taste it. Yeah. And the, the smoothie's still a pretty purple or red because of those berries. So you don't even know that you're getting vegetables in. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the best hack. Like it's amazing. And like I freeze everything so that it's like this, it's like a milkshake. It's so yummy. Love it. So good. Okay, the last question I have for you. What is a myth yeah. you want to bust about naturopathic medicine? Yeah, I think a big one is that I'm over here casting spells with a crystal ball. You know, a lot of people have <laughs> thoughts about naturopathic medicine being super woo-woo. And maybe there's a little bit of that, but is that necessarily a bad thing? I don't think so. Um, but I strive to recommend evidence-based interventions. I like research, I look at research, and I use it to make safe and effective recommendations for my patients. Um, Another thing that we already hit on, but I I think a lot of people don't realize this, is that most naturopaths, well, they have a license, they should recognize this, that um, there is a time and a place for everything. And sometimes what is necessary is a drug is a surgery or is X, Y, or Z other medical intervention. And so my job as an ND is to make sure that you are safe and receiving the best care possible. And I work with MDs often. I refer to them. I work 
with them on patient cases. And I think that's something that people don't necessarily, re necessarily realize that we do. Love that. Okay, Kelsey, tell everyone where they can find you, your Instagram, website, all of that. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Dr. Kelsey Harris. So it's D-R-K-E-L-C-I-E, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. And my website is drkelseyharris.com. I am currently launching my new practice with my colleague, Dr. Emily Wiggins, and we are at terrainnaturalmedicine.com. So that's T-E-R-R-A-I-N, naturalmedicine.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you so much, Seth. So fun to talk to you today.